0: Uh, Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, if you have a Bible or you want to use your uh, phone or your iPad. Uh, We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 this morning as we uh, continue in our sermon series, A Reason for Hope. Uh, Our memory verse, which we're not going to do together this morning, but there should be a card in your bulletin that has the memory verse on it from 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. So your assignment this week is to take that home, put it in your Bible, put it on your refrigerator, put it wherever you go the most, put it on your treadmill, your bike that you ride, whatever you do, where you spend some time. Because we want to memorize those verses. And our goal is to, at the end of this sermon series, be more equipped as a congregation, as well as individuals, to give people the reason for the hope that is within us when they ask. That's what that verse says, that we will always be prepared. We've set apart Christ as Lord, and now we're ready. If someone were to come to us and say, well, why do you believe in Jesus? That we would be prepared to give a reason for that hope. And it doesn't matter if they come to us and say, I'd really like to know why you believe in Jesus? Or if they come to us and say, I think you're a knucklehead for believing in Jesus, how on earth could you believe that? The tone of the person asking the question is irrelevant. Our responsibility as disciples of Jesus is to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within us. So we asked you a few weeks ago, what are the reasons why we maybe are a bit nervous about that particular situation? And one of the things that came back kind on of over and over again was, I don't know exactly what I would say. I don't know what I would share. So we're going to look at that this morning. But for a minute, I want to move away from the theological and I want to go to the emotional, okay? I want you to think about how nervous you would be. And some of you might say I wouldn't be nervous at all. Others of you might say I'd be extraordinarily nervous, right? If right this moment you were put on the spot and your worst go tell Jesus nightmare came true. Watch the screen.
1: Late one Friday night. I was driving home from Cuba, Missouri, and I got a it's about 10 o'clock at night, and I got a phone call from my nephew. He lives in Columbia, Missouri, and he had come to St. Louis to attend an atheist convention at Wash U. There's a radio talk show called Dogma Debate, and the host was, was going to be having a show Saturday night, and he asked the audience if they knew any Christians that would be willing to be interviewed on his show to talk. And uh, Donnie uh, said, well, I, you know, I, I, my uncle would be a good guy. Let me, let me ask my uncle if he'd, be, <laughs> if he'd be available or interested in coming. And uh and, and so as he described this, I immediately thought, you know, a bunch of atheists, you know, this this is gonna be pretty antagonistic, this guy's gonna be intellectual giant and I'm just gonna get skewered. So my first thought was to slough it off. I said, Well, how about if I bring my pastor or somebody from the church and he said, he said No, we we really want a a regular guy. We don't want a trained theologian. So I called Donnie back and, and I said I would, and he's all happy. It's, so now I had roughly 24 hours to, to fret and worry and, and you know, prepare for this. And, and I had a hard time sleeping that night. I woke up the next morning and I, I was just praying. I, I said, Lord, remember when Tom spoke about Luke chapter 12 last week? And he said, Don't worry about what you're going to say when you're brought before synagogue rulers and authorities. The Holy Spirit will give you what to say at that time. And so I, I just prayed that all day long. And in, in Luke chapter 11, verse 11, it says, you know, though you were evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so I, I prayed those two constantly. Lord, would you give me the gift of your Holy Spirit? Would you give me the words to speak to these people? I don't know what he's going to ask me. I don't know how to prepare for this. And the third thing I prayed for was uh, for the ability to love these folks. I really, I really asked God, would you give me a heart of compassion for these people? Help me to love them the way you love me. When it was time for David to start his radio talk show, uh, you, know, you know, he he said that he had a couple other guests that were going to appear ahead of me, which I wasn't aware of. So I had another hour to wait. But during that time, I was talking with Don, my nephew, and he was explaining to me that that you know a lot of these folks in the audience were from Christian homes. They they had tried the Christian thing, and 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 uh, when they told their folks, their family, that they weren't interested in the faith or didn't believe or whatever, they they became ostracized. They were they were rejected and, and there's it's just a lot of pain a lot of hurt and, and and so as I'm listening to the rest of these speakers you know and, and, and my fear and my nervousness transformed into compassion. It actually started with this question what do you think about things so far and and I honestly said it's nice to see the humor and the, and the fellowship you guys have I, I'm, I'm very pleased with that I'm very, but what I really feel uh, bad about is the hurt that you feel. I, I understand about the rejection you guys have felt, and I, I, I want to say that I'm really sorry about that. It's not the, what Jesus taught. It's not what he modeled. It's not how he lived. And, I, and I'm sorry. And, and and it seemed, it seemed to change the tenor of, of the of the audience. You know, instead of being antagonistic, they, they, it just kind of simmered down, and, and it just changed. It was supposed to be a 20-minute interview, and I was going to be off the air. Well, it turns out I was on the air for an hour. I was, out, you know, three times longer than what, what they expected, and I think in large part because members of the audience kept coming down to the mic and asking questions. They they wanted, they had sincere, earnest questions that they w- wanted to speak with me about. And and uh, and at the end of the evening, they the several of them thanked me. They came up and shook my hand and thanked me for coming. Actually, Amy was there with me, and uh, the next day she said, Kevin. You know, even though you might not have had all the best answers, what really shined through very clearly was your love, your compassion, your gentleness, and respect for these people. And it really spoke volumes. And I think they received it. They, they, they Like I said, there was no antagonism. It was very sincere, very earnest, and very thoughtful, and very respectful. Yeah, uh, much different than what I expected. I, even though I was scared to death, I was sweating bullets, God intervened and just gave me a piece that passed his understanding. And, uh, and I, I hope and pray that, that he used my visit to somehow influence others for
0: Christ. So there's like three people in this room right now that wish that they had been in Kevin's shoes. And would wanted to be able to do that with all their heart and their soul and their strength. The rest of us are all saying, thank you, Lord, send Kevin, right? <laughs> I'm so glad that wasn't me. When you heard him begin to talk about what was going to happen, there was a gasp in the room. I'm sure you heard it. And I'm sure some of your palms started to get sweaty just thinking about the possibility that that could have been you, right? It's a scary notion to think about sharing with someone the hope that is within us. And I hope that you caught a couple things uh, about what, what Kevin mentioned Uh, First was that it is important to know what you're going to say. And what we're going to look at this morning is is what should we know? What is the fundamental message of the gospel? But if it isn't covered and completed with compassion and with grace and love because you've received the love of God in Christ Jesus, it actually does much more harm than good. So there have to be both of those things. uh, And we're going to see both of those things in this passage this morning. So while we're thinking about what we ought to know, Uh, Hopefully, that is also transforming us into the type of people we should be as disciples of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, hear the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience And raised up with him and seated with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, as I uh, stand here this morning and pray uh, with and for our congregation, Lord, our hearts are inclined to want to know the most important answers of life. Why are we here? What is the purpose? is there any ultimate hope? Father, for those of us who claim to be disciples of Jesus and be saved by your grace, you've called us to be your witnesses. You've called us to say, yes, there is a reason we're here. Yes, there is a greater hope. Yes, there is a promise that is for all who will believe. And Father, we want to be used by you to share that message, but Lord, we must remember that it begins not just with the words that we say, but the lives that we live. So I thank you, Father, that Paul put the gospel in this context this morning. Uh, In these 10 verses, we, we can know everything we would need to know to talk to someone about Jesus, but we can also see a tone and an attitude and a heart that is absolutely essential. So Father, we pray this morning that you would not only feed us intellectually, that we would know you in a deeper way. But we also pray that you would break our hearts over our own selfishness, our self-righteousness, and the reasons we give unbelievers to despise us. And they're probably right to do so. Father, give us humble hearts, compassionate hearts, when we focus on what you have done for us. And in that tone, Father, may you use us as your witnesses. God, you know my sin. You know uh, that I have no right to stand up here uh, on my own strength or in my own wisdom. I pray that you would forgive me. I pray that you would not let me be a hindrance to what you want us to learn and to understand and to be applied to our lives today. Lord Jesus, please come and teach us. We pray in your name, amen. Sermon in a sentence this morning, pretty short. And to the point, humanity has a problem. God has a plan. And the disciples of Jesus must be part of the solution. We're going to look at those three things this morning because I believe that's what is found in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through ten. Someone asked me recently as we we're going through the sermon series, and part of the the knowledge of you know what would you share with somebody. Somebody asked me if you could go to only one passage in Scripture and use it in a conversation with someone who asked you for the hope that was in you. Where would you go? And this is my go-to passage. Now it might not end up being yours, and that's okay. You may have another one that works better for you. But for me, the sum and substance of what we We need to share with the world, and the manner in which we need to share it is all right here in this particular text. The first thing that Paul tells us is that humanity, including all of us, right? Paul includes himself in this, as we'll see in a moment. All of humanity has a problem, and the problem is found in the first verse. We are spiritually dead. Paul doesn't mean you're physically dead. It means you're spiritually dead. You are alienated from God. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, God set up this beautiful creation. He gave Adam this wonderful place to live. And he said, we're going to be friends. We're going to walk together. We're going to enjoy life together. But you got to trust me. You see that tree over there? Don't eat from it. If you eat from it, it'll kill you. And eventually, Adam ate from it, and it did. It killed him. He didn't drop dead that minute. He lived for lots more years. But eventually, he physically died. But at that moment, he was spiritually dead. And everybody who's ever come from our original parents is also in that condition. We are alienated from God. We are as good as dead spiritually. And Paul uses two words to describe that. Why are we spiritually dead? Well, Paul says you're spiritually dead because you have trespasses in your life, right? You have transgressions would be another word to use. And we've explained this before, but perhaps you've forgotten. And if you're new, this might be uh, new information for you. But a transgression is a willful act of disobedience, right? I'm driving over to Indianapolis this afternoon. You need to pray for me that in the car over, I will not for several hours have a willful act of disobedience with my radar detector. I look at my radar detector and I say, I'm not gonna plug you in. And my radar detector says, come on, we can go faster. And I'll go off, I'll protect you, I'll take care of you. And nobody from your church is riding in your car with you, what's 90 miles an hour between you and me, right? Okay, a willful act of disobedience. You see the speeding sign, that I'll go faster. You see the stop sign, you go through it. Your mom or dad says, don't do that, and you say, what do they know? You do it, right? Your children say, I don't want to do what you want me to do, and you get angry with them and you blow up at them and you harm them emotionally, right? We have willful acts of disobedience. We know it, we do it anyway. I've never met a person that says, I I, I haven't done something intentionally I know was wrong that hurt someone else or hurt me in the process. Paul says, We're spiritually dead because we are trespassers. But he also says that we're spiritually dead because we're sinners. That's the more common word that you hear people in our, a lot of people in our culture are very familiar with the word sin, but it's often misused. Sin is often misused as a transgression or as a trespass. It's not that. A sin is a failure. So the bar is here and I don't quite make it, right? So love your neighbor as yourself, right? Everything you would do for you, do for your neighbor. You say, 50% of the time. I try to love my neighbor well. I try to do the right things, but you know what? Every so once in a while, that's a little bit too demanding. My schedule is a little bit too hectic, and no, I don't really do everything. I don't really offer every kindness, every you know, thing that I should do that, that's polite and kind. I don't always do that. I fail. To live up to the standard because God says, trust me and follow me and obey me and you'll have life. And God says, and that'll spill over into your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. And we say to God, no thanks. Sometimes we go our own way. And at other times we don't live up to what we're called to. There's also reasons behind this. So we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but there's also an evil influence at play at well. He says, we're dead in our trespasses and sin in which you once walked Following the course of the world, following the power of the air, okay? So there's two followings that are going on here, right? There are two evil influences. The first is following the course of this world. And what Paul means there is take God out of the equation, ignore God, decide how you're now going to live as your own God, and that's the course of the world, right? So every person that rejects God and every person in this room has rejected God at some point. And gone a different way, even if you're a disciple today, there's a point where you reject the God. Some are still rejecting God, and we choose to live void of God's influence in our lives. And that's the course of this world. The course of this world is also inspired by the prince of the power of the air. In the Gospels, in the New Testament, he's called Satan. In other places, he's called the devil, and believe you me, he's real. And he walks around, and he looks for people to devour He is a fallen angel. He is a spirit who wants nothing more than to see you in hell, separated from God for all of eternity. Nothing would make him happier than that. And these two forces are at work in our lives. Why do I trespass? Why do I sin? Sometimes it's just inside of me. (laughs) And I don't need anybody else's help. And I don't need anybody else's influence. I can do it very well on my own. Thank you very much. But there are other times when I see others. Example. And I follow the course of the world. There are other times when there's, there, there's the spirit, there's the sense in me that says, I think I want to do that. I think that would feel good or I would enjoy that. And I follow that. These influences end up leading me to transgressions and sins and therefore spiritual death. Now, it's not like I go kicking and screaming, right? It's not like I say, you know what, I never want to do that, right? Right? We follow the course of this world. We follow the prince of the power of the air who is at work and the sons of disobedience. We are willing recruits among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. It wasn't like we were in a, in a prisoner war camp and we couldn't get out. And we all wanted to do the right things, but everybody else was really bad and we were really good. No. Paul says here, among whom we all once lived. We, we were happy to live in this condition. I was watching uh, the news the other day, and they were interviewing uh, somebody who had been caught in some of the, the recent um, uh, demonstrations that have happened around, you know, the, the political world in the United States these days. And they were asking this young man, well, you know, why were you smashing windows, and so we were going down the street and people started smashing windows. So I, I, I started smashing windows too, right? He just got caught up in the moment. Now he went on to say some other things about his particular political leanings, but he was like, everybody arounds me doing it, right? So I jumped right in, which reminds me of what my mom used to say. If all your friends would jump off a cliff, why, you know, would you jump off a cliff with them? And I would always say, well, there are no cliffs in St. Louis. So, uh, you know, and then she would come up with something, something obviously better. But point is I'm a willing recruit. I'm I'm happy to go along. I don't have an inclination towards God. I don't have this deeper, better uh, condition in my heart than the rest of the world. I'm actually happy to go along with the party. Therefore, I am spiritually dead. Humanity has a problem. And all of this leads to the the biggest problem that it creates for us, which is the righteous judgment of God. What does Paul say in verse 4? among whom we all once lived in the, right? But nope, sorry, go back to verse three, second half of verse three, I'm sorry, all right. Um, We once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, right? What is due you for all those things you think, say, and do wrong? What is due me? What's the just outcome for the life of Tom Ricks? If there is someone looking, if there is someone paying attention, and if there is a standard of loving God with my heart and therefore loving you very, very well and never harming you and always seeking to help you and support you and love you, when I fail to do that, and when I intentionally go in the opposite direction and I thumb my nose at that which is good and honoring to God and good for you, those two things always go together. When you read the Bible, you see very carefully when I love God, when the spirit of God controls my life and I'm in submission to his will and his love and his grace, it's always better for the people around me. It always ends up coming out in ways that benefit my society. But When I don't do that, is God just gonna turn a blind eye? Is God gonna say, well, I didn't really mean that I wanted you to love your neighbors yourself, so just go ahead and go and do what you want and I'll reward that someday, right? We would call that really bad parenting. A parent who tells a child not to do something and that allows that child to do something, and that doesn't do anything about it, that's bad parenting. And it might not be that big of a deal when they're one or two, but trust me, I have three grown children. When they're 16, 17, 18 years old, you want your children to know that you love them, that you would die for them, and that they better believe that what you tell them is true. And if they don't, it's gonna be really bad repercussions, right? A loving and just God cannot turn a blind eye to the way I treat you. He can't turn a blind eye to the way you've treated others. And it says right here, we are under his wrath. We deserve God's punishment. God says, it's not okay for you to reject me because I know that will lead to you hurting each other. It's not okay for you to gossip and slander one another, lie to one another and cheat one another and make excuses for your behavior. It's not okay to sexually exploit other people. It's not okay to idolize your priorities over the worship of God. God's not gonna turn a blind eye to that. Humanity has a problem. When you're sharing the gospel with someone, you have to make that abundantly clear. This is not about just feeling better. This is not about God coming and just kind of being your little butler who will take care of you and answer all your needs and make sure you never have a problem. You never lose any sleep at night. Everything just feels better. This is about a life and death situation and we've chosen death. We have a problem, but God has a plan. Let's look at this plan for just a minute in verses four through seven. God's plan is a plan with resources, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So Paul turns a corner in verse four. In the first three verses, he's talking about you and me, and it's not pretty, right? And Brian, as you go to plant your church, you have to tell people the bad news of the gospel. You can't ignore that. You can't pretend like that isn't part of the message. Your goal is not to have everybody in St. Charles like you. Your goal is to go to St. Charles and tell people about the love and the grace of God because of the brokenness of humanity. God has a plan, and this plan is filled with resources. God is rich in mercy, rich in mercy. Now, when you think about rich, different things come to different people's minds. So I tried to come up with rich that would be rich to everybody in this room, no matter how much you have or don't have. If you take the 10 richest people in the world, and you combine all of their assets, you have $600 billion, okay? That's rich. Could we agree on that? Can we agree that that is rich? Okay, thank you. $600 billion, right? If you had $600 billion in your pocket right now, you would be rich and you wouldn't have a drop in the ocean of riches compared to the riches of the mercy of God. They're infinite. They're without limit. There is no end to the mercy of God for those who call on him for his grace. God can get the job done. God has the resources to bring about salvation and grace and mercy in our lives. God is rich in mercy, but also because what? Because of the great love with which he has loved us. This plan is based on a practical expression of love. And we're gonna break that apart in just a minute when we get to the next verses, when we look at what Jesus Christ has done for us. But God doesn't just sit up in heaven and be rich in mercy and say, I'm so sorry for you. I hope it works out someday. (laughs) Got to say, you know, I'm kind of busy with other stuff right now. I have other solar systems to run. There are a lot of universes out there. You should see the work it takes to to make sure a black hole doesn't engulf the world. So I hope you make it. I'm rich in mercy, but I don't have time to spend any of it on you. No, Paul says, because of the great love with which he has loved us. God's love is active. It is practical. It meets the need of our spiritual death. So not only does God have the resources, but he is emotionally inclined to spend them on us. He reaches out to us in love and in mercy. So I had to go to Kansas City for a Presbytery meeting on Friday and Saturday. And, and as I do when, I, when I'm out of town, I reach out to Cindy and see how she's doing. So I, I texted Cindy after the plane landed. I was, I was getting ready to drive over, waiting for the rental car. And I texted her, how you doing? She texted back, my neck is killing me. All right, I'm having a bad day. My neck is killing me. And then the next text was, do we have a few bucks so that I could go to the mall and have that guy work on my neck? So I'm sorry that we've offended every doctor and chiropractor in the room. Cindy goes to the mall and there's this little guy that loves her and works on her neck and it's, it's 40 bucks. I'm sorry, Dr. Bob, I come to you. I can't, I don't know my Cindy's, uh, but she wanted to go and get her neck massage, right? And what did I write back? No, we absolutely can't. Why would I spend $40 on you? Who do you think you are? Of course we have. Go, uh, yes, go get, go get your neck massage, right? Got home the next night. Got home yesterday afternoon. Uh, finished working on my sermon. Got home. Went over. Um, how you doing? Oh, man, my neck really, really, it's still hurting. I've got ice on it. I'm, you know, But you know what? I could really use some chicken fried rice. Well, of course, chicken fried rice is good for a bad neck, right? <laughs> right. So what do I do? I, I call up and I order some other stuff that I might like to. And I run and get some chicken fried rice. And, and, I, and I come home and I say, chicken fried rice is here. And she, could you bring it upstairs? I just don't feel like coming down the stairs. Who do you think you are asking me to, to wait on you hand and foot? Of course, bring it upstairs. Here it is. I hope it makes you feel better. What else can I do for you? I'm good. So, okay, I'm going to go watch the news real quick. I'll be back upstairs. Come back upstairs. Now, I don't know, it's about nine o'clock or so. And she says, do we have any, any Motrin? I need some Motrin. And so, do we have any up here? She says, I don't think we have any up here. I don't even know if we have any. I went, oh, I have some in my golf bag because golf always leads me to pain. And so, <laughs> let me run downstairs and get some for you, right? Now, none of that's extraordinary, right? If I didn't do any of that, you'd be going, you're not much of a pastor, much less a human being, right? You wouldn't, wouldn't do those small kindnesses for your wife. But that's a practical love. That's an act of love. And I did that because I loved her. Because she's been with me for 35 years. And I'm hoping she'll stick around a little bit longer. What if one of you had called me last night at 9 o'clock and said, I need some Motrin? Would I have been inclined to drive it to your house? <laughs> probably for a lot of you, yeah. Because I, 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 I want to look good. I mean, I stand up here every Sunday, right? <laughs> I can't say my motives would be pure. But yeah, I'd probably bring you some some Motrin, right? right? But what if you were a total stranger and you got my number from somebody? And you lived on the other side of St. Louis. Would I would I bring you? Motrin then, what if you're somebody that I knew, although you hadn't said it to my face, I knew you said bad things about me behind my back. Would I bring you, Motrin? Not much of a chance of that happening at all. Maybe one out of a hundred, okay? God is not just rich in mercy, but he spends it on people who have gone against him actively and have failed to love the other people he's created well. And yet he practices love in a very practical way. God has a plan. It's a plan of resources. It's a plan on a practical expression of love. And it's a plan that refuses to be denied. Look at verse 5. Goes on to say, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. God isn't going to allow even death to stand in his way of bringing grace and mercy into our lives. And not only is it a plan that refuses to be denied, but it also says here it's a plan of life. He made us alive together with Christ. What does that mean? Very simply put, it means this Jesus said, I'm going to die for the sins of the world. I'm going to live a perfect life. I'm going to come to this earth. I'm never going to sin. I'm going to do everything that I should to honor God and to love my neighbor. And then I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to take the punishment that the rest of the world deserves on me. I'm going to be a sacrifice for them, right? It's like the guy in the, in the, in the, uh, in the foxhole that dives on the hand grenade, saves everybody else around him at the cost of his own life. Jesus is the sacrifice. The question is, will God accept the sacrifice? right? Will God say that's good enough for us? We were made alive together with Christ. You know why the resurrection is so important? Because the resurrection is the stamp of God's approval on Jesus being a sacrifice for your sins and my trespasses. Jesus doesn't raise from the dead physically, bodily, raised from the dead. We're all still under the wrath of God. But Paul is very clear here. Even when we were dead, God would not be denied and he went to the cross and he verified that sacrifice at the resurrection so that there could be a plan of life and void of human effort. How does verse 5 end? It is by grace you have been saved. All right? This is not your work. It's not my work. It's not our effort. It's the effort of God who calls us into grace and mercy, not asking us to meet him halfway not asking him to hold up our hands so he can pull us out of the, of the muck and the mire, but rather diving into the muck and mire with us and pulling us out when we were as good as dead. This is a plan that brings life and is void of human effort. And, and lastly, in this section, it's a plan that will never, ever end. raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of the grace and the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God wants to spend eternity showing you how cool it is to be connected to him through Jesus Christ. He has plans that we can't even begin to measure or describe or comprehend. All right. I love the far side. I, I was so sad when, when far side ended, but the cartoon where the guy's got uh, wings and he's got a halo and he's sitting on a cloud and he says, I wish I would have brought a magazine, right? Okay, that's not heaven. Heaven can't even be measured. The, God is in, fully intended to take all of eternity to show you how much he loves you. God has a plan. Brian, when you preach the bad news of the gospel, make sure you also preach the good news of the gospel that this plan is a plan of love and compassion and mercy. Green Tree Community Church, when we are gathered together, we must always celebrate the problem of humanity, but the plan of God. When we leave this place and we go out into our businesses and our schools and our neighborhoods and our homes, we need to live out this plan so that people can see the love of God because there is a solution to all of this. That's the last part of what we want to look at this morning. Paul says in verse 8, It's by grace you have been saved through faith and not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. What is our part of the solution? It is to believe God's plan. To believe God's plan of mercy and love and new life in Christ is for me. I can personalize it. I can put my faith in Christ as my substitute and know because of the death and the resurrection of Christ that my salvation is secured in him forever. The solution is that I trust. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not of your own. It's a gift from God. God even gives us the ability to believe. He makes our hearts alive so that we can trust in him But there's also another part of the solution that leads us to the question of humility. It's by grace you've been saved. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. This is not my effort. It wasn't my inclination. I was as good as dead. I have no place in my life to judge others or to harbor pride or hatred in my life to people with whom I have disagreement. Part of the reason why people reject Christianity is they look at the way we live and they look at what we say and they don't seem to match up. And we need to understand and confess that to God and ask God to allow his grace and mercy to seep deeply into our lives so that the way that we live does not confuse people when we open our mouths and speak. Let me read you a quick quote out of uh, the book, Good Faith. When we relate to people who are not Christians, whether secular or of another faith, we have to get the love plus believe plus live equals good faith equation right. As our friend Barry Corey said, Christians should have soft edges and firm centers. Jesus related to people this way. Think about his interaction with the woman at the well. His response to his interrogators. Or his life-giving answers to those with hungry hearts. He spoke the truth from a firm center but his his hospitable, humble, soft edges allowed people to get close enough to hear him. Jesus practiced the sacred art of seeing people. When we have soft edges and firm centers, we can see people as those whom Jesus dearly loves. And when aided by the Holy Spirit, we see them, we can look beyond the trends and into real people's hurts and hopes and needs. I would say the, the, the two biggest issues for the Christian church is that which we're covering this morning. The knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be able to articulate it to others, but lives that reflect that grace and that mercy and that kindness. Do we have not only faith, but do we have faith and humility? If we do, then we'll understand the, the final aspect of this passage in verse 10 where Paul reminds us now who we are in Christ. For we are his Workmanship. That word workmanship means masterpiece. So what kind of masterpiece do you want to be? Do you, you know, do you want to be a Renoir? Do you want to be a Michelangelo? What do you want to be? I'm, I love the American West, so I'm going to be a Remington. That's the masterpiece I'm going to be. There's one of Remington's famous pictures, uh, and I just I love looking at Remington. He might not be one of the greatest artists that ever walked the face of the earth, but I just love how he depicts the American West. So you can be what you want to be. I'm going to be a Remington. But you couldn't go out and just buy that picture. It hangs in an art gallery, Right? It, that, that, there's one of those in the whole world, the real one, and it's of great value, right? It might not be the Mona Lisa, but it's of great value, right? God has made you a masterpiece. We are God's workmanship. In Christ, we are, we are the best that God produces in order to share with the dying world the grace and the mercy of His Son. And we, our lives need to picture, if we go back to that verse now, our lives need to picture this grace. God has created us in Christ Jesus, this beautiful masterpiece. Why? Because he has good works for us. And some of those good works are talking to our friends and our neighbors. Anybody who would ask us, why do you believe in Jesus? What's what's this Christianity thing? I I see a lot of stuff out there on TV and I think it's kind of whacked out. I I got no idea what this is all about, but you seem a little bit different and you say you're a Christian. That's the opportunity that is before us. God intends us. He's placed us right here, right now in this generation and, and the families that we represent and the neighborhoods we represent and the businesses and the schools we represent and the sports teams we represent. All right, all of that because there are people that are gonna ask us and our lives need to have an answer and our words need to have an answer. So what are the steps we take to live and to speak so that people can see and hear the gospel of Jesus? Well, some of you didn't need this sermon a whole lot. You know, the three of you that said, boy, I wish I had been with Kevin, I'd have I'd loved that, that opportunity, All right? There are some of us in this room who are, who are true evangelists and, and you get it. And and it just kind of comes out of you, and you're living uh, humble, gracious lives that point people to Jesus. So just just prayerfully practice it. Just keep it up, and challenge us, encourage us, pray for us that, that we'd come along with you in this journey. So some of you just need to kind of keep going in the right direction. But for others of us, we came in this morning with with a couple of issues. One is we didn't really know, and and now you have a passage of scripture that you can learn. You also have the the little Bible verses from from uh, First Peter that would be great to memorize. But now you've been given some information, and we put these sermons online, so if you missed a couple points, you can go back and listen again. You can call me, and we'll sit down, and we'll go over it one-on-one. But you need to know the message. You need to understand it so that you can share it with others. But for some of you, you're saying, going, I don't know that I believe the message. I, I, I have a lot of questions. I've never picked up a Bible in my life. I I'm not even sure what a Bible is, or I've read it, or I'm like some of the folks that Kevin talked about. I grew up in a place where people rejected me because I didn't, I didn't think I, I really wanted Christianity. For any of you that, that are in one of those two places, either you need more training, right? You say, I just need somebody to help me walk through the message so I get it down, or I don't know if I believe we have people in this church that are ready right now to meet with you one-on-one and to help you with that to talk with you about that, to spend some some several weeks just with you. Or if you're too uncomfortable with that and you want to get a couple of buddies or friends to come along, get a couple of folks, one on two, one on three. But we have people in our church who if you text that, or uh, yeah, I guess text uh, that uh, address on the screen, they'll reach out to you and say, let's get together and let's talk. We want to make sure that as we go through the sermon series, we give you pathways this morning, for example, to know whether it's knowing enough to share what you already believe or or learning more in case you desire to believe. And then I believe for every disciple in this room, we must saturate ourselves in God's rich mercy and grace so that our words and our lives will point people to knowing him, to loving him, because humanity has a problem. but God has a plan and disciples must be part of the solution. Let's pray together. Father, we have uh, commissioned Brian and a uh, small group to go to St. Charles to share the gospel. We thank you for the work that Brian put in. We thank you for the faithfulness that he's shown over these past uh, couple of years uh, in preparing, being ready. But Father, that's not the sum and substance of the, of the work of sharing the gospel at Green Tree. Lord, you've called each one of us who, who is a disciple of Jesus this morning to live lives and have words that would point people to him. Lord, I thank you for what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, just this, in 10 verses, this microcosm of the gospel, that we have a terrible plan, that, that our sins and trespasses have, have broken us beyond human repair. But that God has a plan to fix that. And that is a plan of love and grace of mercy. And I pray, Father, for any this morning who came in not knowing you, that they would, they would come to you in faith this morning. They would say, God, that's what I believe. That's what I want to believe. I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for the rest of us, that we would grow in that knowledge and that we would grow in the influence of the Holy Spirit, that we would live lives that would reflect this message of grace, that others would know him. We pray in his name. Amen.